Hello, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast that brings you the stories behind the startups from the entrepreneurs that are building them. I'm your host, Becca Skutak, and I'm joined, as always, by your favorite, Dominic Midori Davis. Hey, Dom, how's it going? I am doing good. I keep thinking about the new year, though. Any resolutions? Oh, why would I have a resolution? I'm perfect already. No, exactly. I'm kidding. No. <laughs> exactly, period. We're already perfect. <laughs> Today we have on Charlie Hernandez from My Pocket Lawyer, which is a app and website that provide access to legal resources so that consumers, small businesses, and freelancers alike can get help with their complex legal issues. This was a really dense conversation, and I feel like I learned a lot about the legal system, which I mentioned a few times during the conversation, is something I do not really know anything about. So I get why this exists, and it was interesting to hear about why so many people don't seek out legal help when they need it. Yes. And before we begin, of course, we have our new segment, The Two Truths and a Lie. Yeah, we'll tell you the lie in the outro. So pay attention right now and see which one we're lying about. Okay, so one, my pocket lawyer has been threatened with legal action. There is a regulatory tailwind that is helping my pocket lawyer expand. Or according to our guests, 99% of legal issues faced by minority groups go unaddressed. You'll have to listen to find out. So let's get into the conversation. Hey, Charlie. How's it going? Hey, Becca. Great to be here. How are you doing, Dom? I'm good. Hey, thanks for hopping on with us. I'm excited. We have a lot to talk about. Oh, that's always the best thing to hear. We should probably get started then. Maybe if you want to just start by telling us a bit about the company. I will. So I think what we're probably going to get into today is the fact that the entire legal industry is about to change, how it's not going to happen without a massive fight, and how the company I'm here representing, my pocket lawyer, is on the front lines of that fight. So my pocket lawyer uses generative AI and natural language processing to provide high quality, low cost, affordable legal information and advice via the internet. This is something that's never really been done before. You've never been able to use this technology to access legal help this way. And the problem is you have millions of Americans every day facing civil legal problems without access to a lawyer with very few resources, if any, to help them navigate what is really a complex civil legal system in the US. And so. Every day, millions of people are losing their children, their jobs, their homes, while the legal profession contemplates how to manage this crisis. And there's a name for this crisis, by the way. It's called the access to justice crisis. And the legal profession has not made any significant changes to the way that we've always done things. So these stories I'm talking about, this is families that are involved in the three and a half to four million evictions that are filed every year. So that's probably somewhere between four and eight evictions every minute that are happening. It's millions of workers that are having their wages garnished for debt. It's the two and a half million grandparents that are raising their grandchildren, trying to get them enrolled in school and connected to medical care. That's what this fight is going to be about. It's trying to get legal help to these people in a way that they've never had access to before. That's what my pocket lawyer is all about. And since you're talking about how large of an issue this is, why isn't there resources for this already? Or kind of like why, if people know this is such a broken system, why are you guys sort of the first people looking to tackle it? Well, the one thing I'll say to start is that we're not the first people to try to solve this problem. We're the first people to try to use technology in this way to do it. So I'm sitting on the shoulders of tons and tons of people who are very passionate, smart, hardworking, dedicated people who have been pushing for this access to justice movement for a long, long time. And they've done fantastic work. But the challenge is, Lawyers will never be able to solve this problem on their own. There is 
a, an extent of demand for legal services in this country that outpaces the capacity of lawyers to meet it by a 55 to 1 ratio. So there are never going to be enough lawyers to solve this problem. And you have legal aid organizations, you have pro bono organizations, but they're so limited by the access to capital that they have that they really can't even make a dent in the, the size of the problem that we have. For every person that a legal, or, or legal aid organization helps, they have to turn away just as many, if not more, people. So you can ask, why does this exist? Why have we let the legal industry come to this set of circumstances? And the challenge is lawyers traditionally like being the only people who get paid to give legal advice. And that's a problem when lawyers are also the people who are setting the regulations for who can and can't get paid to give legal advice. So that's when the system is broken. And that's when you basically need to rebuild it from the ground up. That's what we're trying to do. And that's why it's going to be such a big fight. Is there a specific industry that your company focuses on? Or is it just all legal matters people can come to you for? It's anything. It's really anything. And that's the beauty of it. I mean, this is an $800 billion industry, right? Legal help to small and medium businesses, to consumers, to big companies. I mean, heck, we use this, right? Whenever we have a legal issue, if we don't want to go through the effort of paying an attorney and meet right out the gate, if we just want to get a quick answer, we can use this tool ourselves. And it's really phenomenally powerful. I think the, the parallel that I keep drawing is you look at what happened when Uber rolled out in all these different cities. So you had this situation where you have technology for the first time creating something that is a better situation, a better result for consumers, right? I mean, we all remember when we took our first Uber and how much easier and safer and more transparent it was, and honestly cheaper than what the taxi industry used to be. But at the same time, you had this embedded industry group in the taxi organizations that have been around for a long, long time. They're deep in with regulators, with politicians, and they have a golden goose of a revenue stream that's protected from a regulatory perspective, and they don't want to let it go. That's what the legal profession looks like right now, and that's why everybody keeps equating this to what was happening with Uber. And so just to walk us back a little bit, can you talk to us how the product works and like, okay, so I'm a random person, you know, I need legal help. Where do I go from here? How do I use the product? So any legal question you have, right, that can be your dog bit somebody and you don't know what to do, you think that if somebody hit your car and they don't have insurance, you're getting sued, whatever it is, right? Any sort of civil legal issue. Right now in the, in the US, if you have a criminal legal issue, you're protected under the Sixth Amendment, you have a guaranteed right to counsel. If you have a civil legal issue, you're on your own. So if you can't afford a lawyer, that's a big, big problem. So the way you can use our technology, really there are two ways. There's the part of it that's live right now, provide what's called legal information. And that's a term of art as compared to legal advice. And I'll distinguish those in a second. So if you have a legal document, a contract that you don't understand, you can take a photo of it. You can upload it from your computer. We will explain everything that's in that document to you. We will simplify it. We will summarize it. If it's in another language that you don't speak, we'll translate it. And we'll give you all the questions that a lawyer would get asked most commonly for that type of document. Now, all we're doing there is providing legal information, right? We're telling you what's in a document that you have, and we're kind of just explaining it to you. The portion of the technology that we've built that I think is just really powerful and is going to change the way that people access legal help in the, in the U.S. and maybe beyond. This is any legal question you have. You can come ask it and we will give you the legal advice. We will connect to legal databases. That's federal law, case law, statute, state law as well. And we'll give you an answer as to how to navigate it. We can connect you with attorneys if there's a situation where you need to go through litigation. And the challenge with that is anytime, again, you're, you're giving what's called legal advice versus just legal information, there is a whole 
antiquated and embedded framework of regulations around things that's called like what's called unauthorized practice of law or corporate ownership of law firms that prevent you from being able to use technology in this way. And the person that gets hurt at the end of the day is the American consumer. So how have you been able to monetize the business? Because I'm wondering, like, do people pay to use it for the legal advice or is that free and then you make money somewhere else on the back end? So this is the really fun part. And I think this is why the incentives are aligned finally for the tech industry to get behind this is that this is almost like the most profitable nonprofit that you can, can think of, right? Because we are doing the job that nonprofits are trying to do by helping the consumer, but it's done in a way that is phenomenally attractive from a monetization standpoint. And by the way, I'll mention that this is really good for lawyers too. They think it's not, but it is. So there are two ways to monetize it. The first one is via subscription service, right? And if you consider what you would have to go pay a lawyer right now for an hourly fee, the average hourly fee for an attorney is over $300, somewhere around $350. So being able to get that access to legal help without having to pay those phenomenal amounts for hours and hours of legal you know, direct contact, that's really attractive. And that's a subscription standpoint. Now that all said, I come to this from the standpoint of wanting to, again, help that consumer. The other way that you can monetize is via this network of attorneys. So every time something arises where it's a question that maybe we can't address directly because the litigation is involved, we have to file documents, we can escalate that to an attorney. And it is really challenging for attorneys to acquire customers in the US. They spend a lot of money, they spend a lot of effort doing it. They have to have these big intake departments at law firms where they spend time and energy trying to source clients, vet clients, direct them to the right portion of a practice area and we can simplify all of that. So lawyers love it, and they love it so much that they're willing to pay a lot of money for those clients because they're getting more work out of it. They're getting more exciting, interesting matters that they can focus on. They can focus on only the most efficient parts of that. They can do away with all of the nonsense busy work of just trying to find and bring on board clients. So that's really the, you know, those are the two main ways to monetize it, and then there are other few more minor ways. And something that I'm curious about in sort of building out this product is of course, the legal system, the laws are so expansive. And you mentioned that you guys can kind of help both consumers, small businesses can kind of help anyone who really needs legal advice. And of course, you've got state laws, you have federal laws, stuff is so convoluted, so complicated. How have you been able to kind of package everything together into my pocket lawyer and kind of be able to help anyone who does come to the site because it is such a large and confusing space to get into. That's absolutely right. And I think this is why this industry is so ripe for innovation. It is phenomenally inefficient the way that it's structured right now. So you have this patchwork of state law, federal law, different practice areas, corporate law, bankruptcy law, personal injury law, medical malpractice, whatever it is. And you have to go to somebody different for every single one of those things. It's, it's really inefficient. And so, you know, by analogy, we have, let's take a look at the medical industry. We have nurse practitioners and physician assistants who can prescribe medication like a doctor, but they wouldn't be licensed to perform heart or brain surgeries. We also have therapists, we have counselors who would not be licensed to provide psychiatric services, but they can you know, carve out roles that are more limited to these basic tasks. And so what we've tried to do is package this all in a way that you can create this tiered process. So rather than having to go to this patchwork framework of people, you actually have the technology that's doing the first layer and we connect to all these different databases in a really scalable way, right? It's just, you know, it's an API here, it's an API there. And then the problems that we can't solve in the same way that rather than going to a surgeon to do your physical, you can just go to a non-lawyer paraprofessional. It's essentially optimizing what folks are most specialized to do, whether that's the technology, the middle layer of non-lawyer paraprofessionals, 
or the lawyers themselves, everybody is focusing on the piece of the work that they're most expert in and the piece of the work that they're most well positioned to handle. And I'm definitely curious, because we've talked a bit about the product obviously so far, but what got you interested in this space to begin with? Yeah, it's a good question. So my background is in business and law. I did JD MBA in college and started a company about four years ago called Crediverso, which is a financial technology company that aimed to bring financial resources and education to underserved communities, specifically the immigrant community, a lot of non-English speakers, people who just didn't have access to financial resources. Now, one of the things that we discovered, and I don't think this was any big surprise, is we were talking to all these people who didn't have access to financial resources, and those same people also didn't have access to legal resources. And so you hear all these stories about people who they're going to the courthouse and they're defending themselves and they, you know, they're not lawyers. They have no idea what's going on. And this is the same group of people who they don't have access to bank accounts. They don't have access to loans. So there's really this huge underserved market across industries. And I came into it from the perspective of looking at financial technology and how we could use financial technology to increase access to economic opportunity for underserved and underrepresented groups and realize really that that same set of circumstances was applying from a legal perspective as well. And you know, this is something that crosses socioeconomic boundaries because I think we've all experienced this personally or via a friend of us. So we all, we all have friends who have told us about their legal nightmares, right? Same way that we've had friends who've told us about financial nightmares. But this is also a problem that disproportionately affects minority communities, low-income communities. I mean, you take standard cross-section of the country and you're gonna have about 76% of the civil legal issues that people experience are gonna go unaddressed. You go to a low-income community and it's almost 99% of any civil legal problem that they have just goes completely unaddressed. It's housing law, it's family law, it's consumer debt, it's these massive problems that are really affecting people's livelihoods and they're not getting the help that they need. So, you know, to ask what got me into this, yes, I was a lawyer, I am a lawyer, I'm a lawyer in California, but it was really just observing what was happening to our underserved communities throughout the country, both from a financial perspective and then ultimately from a legal perspective that said, hey, we need to do something differently here. This industry is not working the way that it should. And I think it's time to take a hard look at rebuilding it from the ground up. And you no, know, you brought up a really interesting point, and that's, you know, this does really impact, you know, a lot of black and brown communities, a lot of like low socioeconomic communities. I kind of have two questions. The first one is, is there a lot of red tape for you in expanding this company and also trying to really work and target these types of communities? Because I imagine like the legal industry is, well, I don't know, is it like really, really messy? Because we talked to a lot of healthcare companies and hospitals are like hard to get through with. So is the legal industry similar in that way? I wish I could say it were different than the healthcare industry, but unfortunately it's not. I mean, you have a lot of key players in the U.S. legal ecosystem, including state legislatures, bar associations, and they're all protecting vested interests. They want to keep the status quo. They want to maintain the status quo. And you can't blame them for it. A lot of people have made a lot of money for a long time. But the concern here is that we, for the first time, have a way to really give people, whether it's underserved communities or not, we have a way to give people access to something that they've never had before. How do you get a lot of these communities to trust you? Because I imagine, like, I don't know, I mean, it's an app, it's coming from, you know, somewhere. How do you, how do you get them to trust you and your product? Well, I think the good thing is we've been in the space for a long, long time, right? One of the things we did, the company I was telling you about a little while ago, uh, Crediverso, which actually was the genesis for how my pocket lawyer came about. We were the first place to provide a credit check in Spanish in the country. We were one of the first people to offer bank accounts for people who were undocumented. 
So we've spent a lot of time on the ground, building trust, talking to people in the community, uh, forming relationships with community leaders, showing them that there is a better way to do things. There are tools and resources out there that can help. But yes, it's a challenge. People have historically not been very trusting of lawyers. I think that's a big part of the reason why people don't seek out civil legal help in the first place. And our job is to communicate and demonstrate that the world could look very different, right? You don't need to look at this gatekeeping mechanism of a $350 an hour legal fee in order to get the answers to the really problematic questions that you might be facing as a consumer, as an individual, as a family member. You can actually find this stuff finally in an accessible, high quality way online. So that trust building exercise is really important. It's something that we spend a lot of time thinking about, but the good thing is it also comes from a background of the same effort, just in a different industry. And I'm curious about the lawyer side of this, too, because I know you mentioned even in the current system, you would think that all lawyers benefit from people needing to come to them, people needing to like not be able to find this on their own. But that doesn't actually work out in a positive way for as many lawyers as maybe we would think on the surface. What was it like kind of talking to lawyers as you were building this and kind of getting them also on board to maybe help some of these cases where they're not going to be able to just get answers from the databases. So it's funny, when people think of lawyers, they picture Harvey Specter from Suits. They picture the people they see, you know, fighting the good fight in the courtroom and fancy offices and, you know, lots of technology. And that's not honestly what the reality is for most of the attorneys in the country. I mean, you've got a lot of attorneys who are in small firms of one or two lawyers, and they have to balance so much alongside their legal work that they're basically billing on average two and a half hours a day. So time that they get actually paid for, two and a half hours a day, that's not that much. So even if you say, okay, let's take a lower hourly rate than the average. Let's say you're working at a really small firm in a small rural community and you're billing $250 an hour. A typical lawyer who is billing that much money for only two and a half hours a day, they're pulling in about $108,000 a year. That's not that much money. So once you put in expenses like taxes, office space, support staff, research, insurance, you're probably only making a little over $50 an hour working 2,000 hours a year, which is a pretty heavy year for, for a lawyer. So layer that on top of the fact that for another job to be making $54 an hour, you wouldn't require a doctorate or six figures of extra debt. And you face this really challenging situation for lawyers where the way the legal system is structured for the vast majority of lawyers isn't working for them either. So essentially, like, because this help cuts down on some of that back office work, they're going to be able to kind of like have more billable hours or be able to take on more than maybe they could before, if I'm getting that right. Yeah. So if you have to spend of a of an hour long consultation with a new client, a half an hour of it, just getting background, getting to understand what documents they have, reading through those documents. This is after, by the way, you've already put them through an intake process of getting them sorted to the right practice group within your law firm, which is a whole other set of expenses. We can cut that down for you by probably half the time because by the time one of those leads lands on your desk, you've got this full background of information. Hey, what is this person's problem? What are all the documents they have? What's all the case precedent, the historical precedent? What are the recommended courses of action here? So a lot of that work's already done. And what that translates to is lawyers can see more clients, they can be more efficient with their time, and they ultimately can make more money. So this is the big thing that we've been trying to communicate to the legal industry is that technology is not a bad thing, right? A lot of lawyers are afraid of AI. They're afraid of the impact that it might have, but it actually is an opportunity to just create a way more efficient system, right? We have all of these regulations in place that are impacting what could be a free and open market, and they're slowing that down and they're reducing the efficiency of the system. If you improve the technology access available for law firms and for lawyers, let alone what's happening on the consumer side, then you can just create a much more efficient system where, you know, really 
You grow the GDP of the legal industry. And what has it been like fundraising for this? Do venture capitalists automatically get it? Or what has your experience been? It is so interesting because I think you'd look five years ago, 10 years ago, legal tech, first of all, I don't know if anybody was even using that term, but venture investors just weren't attracted to it. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't an opportunity for growth. There were no dollars going into it. Now, the landscape is completely changing. I think people are realizing for the first time that there is this opportunity. Like th This is basically the next industry that will be disrupted by technology, right? Everything is about to change, and investors are finally starting to realize that. It, it, is, it is very exciting, but like I said, it is not going to be without a fight. You know, we've already, just in the couple months that we've been operating, we've gotten lawsuit threats left and right. We got a cease and desist last week. In fact, the cease and desist we got is pretty funny. We responded to it without involving any lawyers, purely by asking my pocket lawyer to draft a response, sent that off. Oh my God. No, we need to hear yeah, a I was little like, bit more about that. Can you tell us what were they ceasing? What were they desisting? Like what, what was happening? Yeah, so my pocket lawyer told me I shouldn't discuss details yet until we've gotten a response oh. back from them. But I think there are a couple of groups in this space that are really going to be loath to give up what the status quo looks like. And I thought it honestly was going to be the lawyers. I thought it was going to be the regulators. The first ones to push back are the incumbents in the legal technology space. Because we are, oh, interesting. I would say of everybody who's active in the space, we are being the most aggressive. We are getting out there and saying, hey, we recognize that there is all this regulatory infrastructure going against consumers being able to access this. Let's not even take that approach. Let's just show consumers what the world could look like with this technology. Let's let them recognize how powerful it is and how much help that they could be getting that they're not getting right now. And let's let them fight the fight for us, right? So the idea is put the product in the consumer's lap the same way Uber did it, the same way Bird did it, the same way Airbnb did it, and let them fight the fight for us. And so because we're being so aggressive there, it's really rattling a lot of cages and it's ruffling a lot of feathers. So we've gotten lawsuit threats from other legal technology companies. We've gotten a lot of pushback already from lawyers, from regulators, not all lawyers, not all regulators, by the way. There are a lot of people who are very progressive in their view on how this can impact the, the benefits. It can, can be a huge source of help and benefits for not only consumers, but lawyers also. But not everybody feels that way. And we are battening down the hatches for what's going to be a huge battle. I was going to say, it's so interesting to hear that because I recently was called in to do jury duty for a civil case. I had never actually had to go in before. And you spend like the first two hours of them, like explaining how all of it works. Cause they like, they go in knowing absolutely no one has any idea. They're like, okay, it's different from a criminal case for this reason and this and that. And I noticed before we got on this call that you've been doing a lot of TV appearances and you're really active on Twitter and talking about, sort of like how the legal system is broken, how you can kind of use something like this to fix it. And based on what you just said, it sounds like you kind of have to do that. Like is how big of a part of building this company is educating the consumer that there are these resources to begin with? It's huge, it's huge. Cause I think consumers need to realize that there could be a better way, that the world could look very different, right? This system was not structured to benefit consumers. It was structured to benefit lawyers and it was structured to benefit politicians who have been subject to regulatory capture by these lobbying groups. It's not structured to benefit consumers. And so people go into the courthouse right now and they're advocating for themselves. They're, they're fighting their own cases and they don't need to be, right? There are other ways that you can do this. So I'll give you an example. The, the fifth district, which includes Texas, uh, Missouri, Louisiana, they put out a piece of guidance yesterday that said anybody who uses AI to 
draft a brief or a submission to the court, or even if they're if, if it's not a lawyer, right? If it's somebody who's advocating for themselves, operating pro se, if they use AI and they don't disclose it, they are subject to penalty. They're subject to all sorts of problems. So they're basically making it more challenging for people to use the resources that they have available to them. And by the way, I know about this because I read what the fifth district puts out about their changes to rules of civil procedure. Most people will not. Nobody wants to read that stuff, right? It's extremely boring. But if you are trying to take advantage of the resources that you have available to you, and you're trying to, hey, there's a new AI tool that came out that can actually tell me what my rights are and how to advocate for myself in court, and I use it and I don't know that, oh, I need to disclose that in a certain way, you're getting in trouble. And so the courts are just making harder and harder for people to advocate for their own rights. And I think what we're trying to do at My Pocket Lawyer is democratize access to high quality legal information and put the power to know your own rights back in the hands of the consumer. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is very odd. Because like, I remember I was covering another legal tech startup and they all, they use AI. And I remember thinking like, yeah, this makes sense. AI should be in the legal industry. Like out of all the random things people put AI in, I'm like, we sh it should be in legal. There's like so much paperwork, so much jargon. So many databases too, like hard information to pull from. Like it's not I mean, they bring down an opinion, but like it's not opinion based. Like it's all like stuff that's laid out. It does seem like, in my opinion, too, like the perfect place to use AI. It's information that is in its original form designed to help the public, but it is gatekept beyond this veil of having to go to law school and having to pass the bar that there, there are these systems that prevent the general public from accessing the rights that should be made available to them. So at the end of the day, in my opinion, this is both a civil rights issue and an economic issue. And let me explain what I mean. On the civil rights side, you have this whole portion of the population that effectively doesn't have the same rights as everybody else because they can't afford a lawyer to help them access those rights. So sorry, you just don't get to benefit from those rights that were designed to help you. It is also an economic issue because the people who are honestly the most entrepreneurial portion of our workforce are not getting access to the legal tools and the legal help they need to start and grow businesses, to protect themselves, to protect their families. And so we're limiting our nation's growth potential by introducing these restrictive market forces into what otherwise could be a free market that benefits consumers, investors, lawyers. It could be good for everybody. And we have these antiquated rules in place that are stopping the whole thing. And now we're gonna take a quick break, but we'll be right back in a second. And just to switch gears a little bit, I would love to know more about you as a leader and kind of the internal workings of the company. So how many um, employees do you have right now? So let's see, we probably have about 10 employees, which is small given, I think, the potential for change that we can make here. And that's the beautiful thing about how scalable this technology is, right? When I graduated from law school, I, like many other lawyers, had the option to go the public interest route or the corporate law route. I actually didn't go either of those. I made the concerted decision to not go the public interest route because I thought, okay, I can go to a public interest firm, I can go to a pro bono clinic, and if I'm lucky, I can help one family every single day. But that's it, right? The scalability of my impact is limited to the human component, how much time I have, how many hours I have available to work, regardless of how hard I'm working or how good I am at my job. I thought, let's use technology to pick up where people cannot solve the problem. And so that's why I started the financial technology company to try to get financial products and resources and education to underserved communities. Uh, and that's, I think, what we're trying to do here. 
what's been really interesting, you asked about my strategy as a leader, is this is definitely a mission-driven company. It's been that way since the very beginning. And what makes that really easy from a recruiting standpoint is that folks honestly come to you. I mean, I can't tell you how many people we've had approach us who are in law school, coming out of law school, lawyers, both junior lawyers and senior lawyers as well, partners who are just passionate about this and share that that desire to affect change and to bridge that access to justice gap. And I'll just say one last thing on this, which is I was lucky enough to have a job prior to this at Verso where the incentives were perfectly aligned to build a scalable, profitable, big company, and at the same time in doing so, help a lot of people who really needed that help. That's the exact same thing that we're doing here. And I think it's so important when you look to what's going on in the AI space, I mean, especially with the news of how OpenAI was structured and you had this nonprofit, for-profit dichotomy, and there was a tension there, you need to have that alignment right up front. It's important to have the right investors who are on board. It's important to have the right stakeholders, the right employees who are all passionate about that cause. Yeah, I was actually going to try to find a way to ask about the nonprofit for profit model. And because after the fiasco of last week, I was like, is that a turn on or turn off to investors now? But yours is like much different. <laughs> but that was just, yeah. But you mentioned your entrepreneurial journey a little bit. You spoke about your previous job. I'm curious to know if there have been any early failures in your career that have taught you something about being a leader and like the importance of it. Oh, yeah. Where, where to begin, right? That's That's the entire process. And I think the one I'll point to is when we launched Curtiverso, it was built upon the same observation that there was a community out there of people who were suffering in silence, who were underserved, who didn't have access to the same resources and by proxy, the same rights that the rest of us had. And Curtiverso was focused on helping the immigrant community. I grew up in a Mexican-American family. My mother's from Mexico, my dad's from East LA. And I have firsthand seen a lot of stories of people who are traveling back and forth between two countries. They're sending money back and forth via remittances and paying a huge portion of their paycheck and fees to do so. And it's really challenging to see the problems that those communities are facing and at the same time recognize that no one really cares. When people are suffering in silence, nobody is paying attention to them. There aren't articles being written about them. There aren't movies being made about them. And that was the case for the immigrant community here in the U.S. That's the case for people who are operating unrepresented, who don't have access to legal information. It's the same exact thing. And so my job at Curtiverso was to convince the venture community that this was a problem worth solving. And I think the timing was right, that we were working on benefiting underserved communities and you know raising our first rounds in the summer of 2020 and people were finally starting to pay attention to that but you know you ask what the challenges were initially and where missteps were it was assuming that everybody is aware of these challenges when they haven't gone through them themselves and i think earlier we were talking about what the process looks like to communicate problem to people and it's a really challenging exercise. I mean, I was talking to a founder friend of mine, who, a female founder, and she was sharing a story about a company that she was trying to raise money for that delivered breast milk from pregnant nursing women who were in the workforce and who were away from their children during the day to their children at home. And she said convincing Silicon Valley that that was a real problem worth raising money to solve and put resources towards was next to impossible. And that's no knock against these investors, right? It's it's really hard to understand the depth and the nuances 
of a problem that you haven't experienced yourself. And so, you know, I think that's what gives me excitement about what we're doing here, uh, even as compared to what we were doing at Credit Verso, which was focused on the specific immigrant population in the Hispanic community. Here, we are building something that everybody can relate to. Everybody has suffered a legal problem. Everybody has a friend or a family member who has a story about a landlord-tenant issue they had or a problem with a loan that they had. It's very relatable. And that's why I keep saying we just need to show people what the world could look like in terms of how this technology could help them for the first time. That's the communications process. That's the goal here. And we're pretty much just at time. But one last question I wanted to ask you, which I always like to ask when we have mission-driven founders on the show, is that when you're building a mission-driven company, it seems like the stakes are a little bit higher. You're not just trying to get an investment return for your VCs. Like you are trying to make something significantly better, not for a business process or a workflow, but for people and for real people who need help. And it makes it almost seem, at least from the outside, that the highs are higher and the lows can be lower. Does it weigh on you building a mission driven company and kind of like how do you keep yourself going when there is that personal driver, there is that sort of more of a drive to succeed, but also on the same side, being kind of in a tougher space? It's a really good question. The first thing I'll say is that I'm very fortunate to have a phenomenal team around me and a phenomenal support system. Going through this process of building a mission-driven company, and even beyond that, building a company that is trying to rebuild an entire industry the right way, there is going to be a lot of friction. We are getting lawsuit threats left and right. Layer that on top of the everyday challenges of running a startup where it seems like there's an existential problem peeking around every other corner. It can be very tough emotionally, but the benefit of that is that it can also be very, very rewarding when you do have the successes. So when we help people, we can look at their faces, we can hear their problems, we can hear their stories and how we were able to help solve them. And that is a very tangible thing. That is a very rewarding thing. So I think as exciting as it is to build a big and profitable company, it's even more exciting to do so when you're able to help real people along the way. Definitely. That sounds like a good place to wrap. Thank you so much, Charlie, for coming on the show. This has been fun. I feel like I learned a lot about the legal system, which, as I mentioned earlier, I do not understand. So that was our conversation with Charlie. Dom, should we tell our listeners what the lie was? Yes. Okay. Drum roll. What is the lie? The lie is that there, there's regulatory tailwind. Charlie actually spoke about how the current status quo is benefiting too many people for change to be easy for them to expand. Yeah, that was interesting to me, though, because learning about that big lawyers wouldn't like people to have everyday folk like us to have access to things that they generally are paid to talk about makes sense on the one hand. But on the other hand, I feel like there's not two groups of people where it's like one who can afford a lawyer and goes to them and they have issues and two, one that can't afford a lawyer and chooses not to find out what's going on. I feel like there's a whole group in the middle that they would want to change for. I don't know, because it's like if I find out something like, oh, I I get hit with an eviction notice and I use my pocket lawyer to find out that no, I actually have a case to fight this. I'm probably going to hire a lawyer. Whereas if I didn't know I had a case, I probably would just be like, "Uh oh, that sucks. And like, wouldn't hire a lawyer. I don't know. I feel like there are a lot of gray areas like that where I don't get why lawyers would be so against this. Well, actually, okay, I do understand it because big law, there's always a big law industry. (laughs) 
um, there's always a big something that is making change hard but also i also don't understand why they would be against it because the product makes sense and also it's a bunch of consumers that they would want to tap into and it seems like it would lead to them having more business and it would also just make them look cool so i also don't know what the tension is i guess or maybe i don't understand the tension or maybe if i was a lawyer i wouldn't be making it hard right because it's like especially considering this is charlie mentioned this is not giving you legal advice this is just giving you information which in theory i could find on my own and then decide whether or not i wanted to hire a lawyer or I could use ChatGPT if I literally ever open that application in my life and ask it what it means and then decide if I want a lawyer or not. Like, I don't know. It feels like my pocket lawyer is more of the middleman that lawyers need to get more business because people understanding the law doesn't mean they can take the law to court. I wouldn't say I could read something online and then think I could represent myself in court. So I don't know. Like, I get it, but I don't. You're right. Yeah, it seems like this is the middleman. But it, it also seems something I could not grasp, and maybe you can help me. How, do, how does my pocket lawyer make money? <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing. And I think Charlie talked about a lot of different ways they could monetize this, which, of course, there are always a lot of ways you can monetize things, but it all depends on what way you do monetize what people actually pay for. But he did hint at one that I think sounds like what they would most likely do or would most likely make sense for them is the like partnering with law firms, kind of similar to what we were just talking about, where if it's like, okay, well, we partner with these law firms we trust, you come on our site, find out X, Y, Z, then you go and work with them because we advertise them or they run ads on the site as being like a lawyer that could help you with that issue. And then they get some kind of a kickbacks, a, dirty illegal word but they get some kind of compensation i guess it's a better way to put that because that would make sense to me because there are other businesses and stuff that utilize that model like zocdoc and stuff like that where it's like yes you're getting a real doctor of course who's licensed and good and you can read a thousand reviews but if you book with them obviously there's an incentive for doctors to be on the platform too yeah so like an agent fee or something an agent commission or something yeah did he break down the prices of the subscription model he also spoke about I don't think so. But I know like chatting with them, like my pocket lawyer is very young, like it's very new. And we all know how much startups love to like launch for free. And then a few months in be like, OK, here's the real money making business model, like seeing like testing out what people would and wouldn't pay for, which I get. Only because like when you're targeting underrepresented communities, you have to price you have to price it like at a specific range where they will that they can afford and that they will use it but also where you will make a profit and money like money off of it for sure so i wonder you know what that balance is especially when you're if you're targeting people who wouldn't usually like go to a lawyer for things or maybe have been out of you know that whole legal spiel world um i wonder you know what is the perfect price range for a subscription model like this that wouldn't alienate them but also would make money and returns for investors i guess no for sure and that's why i think i was a little surprised i don't know what you thought about them not choosing i mean of course if you've watched what happened at open ai i'm sure very few people will choose this business model again but the concept of like a non-profit with a for-profit arm because that would feel like in my opinion at least would solve some of that gray area because then you could get 
grant funding to get off the ground. You could kind of see how people react to stuff and then kind of like build the for profit on top of it. But I might have just said all that and that might not make literally any sense as an actual business. But that's something I thought was interesting that they like decided against going that route. The open AMI model is terrifying and it gave me nightmares. I think I wrote about it, about like how scary it was. But also, I think that not me like also saying, well, you know, this is a good idea for <laughs> this because they could get a lot of grants and stuff, especially from a lot of educational institutions. Because I get why he was saying like it can't be full nonprofit because he was saying like, yeah, in theory, you could be like a pro bono lawyer. And he's like, but then you can't really scale it. And like, there's only so much you can do, which like that I totally get of like making this a for profit business in some sense. But why don't you like aggregate those pro bono lawyers or advertise them on the site and find if they're working to work pro bono anyway, maybe they would fall into that sweet spot of pricing. Like you were saying earlier, where it's like worth it for them to do, but also cheap enough that the people who are avoiding going to legal services to begin with because of price would actually be able to access it. Oh my goodness. I feel like I have more questions than I should because now I'm about to ask you something else <laughs> because I'm like, did he, did he map out the marketing plan for going into communities? No, that is super interesting to think about because what, what would that look like? Cause I feel like I asked that question and it was, it, it just was not answered directly. <laughs> or I feel like I was like, how do you target communities? And he was just like, I, you know, we're really trusted and we're really important in, in the communities, but I feel like it didn't, map out or maybe it was it didn't map out the ways I wanted it mapped out in terms of like we go here we do this we do town halls we're in you know this is how we're targeting specific people I mean a product like this consumer trust is everything because everything you can, there's so many billboard ads of lawyers I know that in my hometown there's like a bunch of ads not even a bunch of ads there's like two lawyers that advertise consistently and we know them oh yeah i've seen them since i was a kid and you drive past them and you're like yeah that's that's that guy i don't know how do you build that trust especially i i also wonder like if you're a digital app is it very different in building consumer trust no that's such a good question and i wonder if some of the stuff he's been doing on it seems like he's been going on like Obviously, of course, he came on found, so he's coming on podcast, but he's also been doing a lot of like cable news type of thing. He has like been. Fox I saw him. And, yeah. So I wonder if like that's part of the marketing strategy, too, because not only are you clearly he's going on. I mean, they know he has a business that works in this area when they book him, but they, he's coming on and talk about the issue because I've watched a few of them and he talks a lot more about, say, why we need something like this as opposed to like what it is. So maybe that's part of the strategy to be like, hey, like this is a huge issue. Here's a solution. And then if you watch at home and you're like, wait, my uncle would have loved this two months ago. It's like, then it spreads word of mouth. I don't know. That's just like a guess. That would be a very lean marketing budget though, which would be great. Maybe when you're in like legal trouble, you know exactly what you're looking for. And this would, you know, Maybe. Come, you would come across it. Me like just hanging out right now. I'm like, how would I find you? But I guess like when I need you, you will be there. I'm assuming that's that's how it would go. Yeah, maybe it's just like an SEO play or something. Yeah, maybe he'll sense when I'm in trouble and then I'll get an ad. Oh my God. <laughs> maybe that's the marketing play. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori Davis. 
Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thank you.